Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And from Ephesians, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope, called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, all. My name is Amy Hughes. My husband, Benji, and I have been at our church for about seven years. If you've likely seen our son, Ezra, running all about, as you notice, I had to kind of pause, make sure he left the room before I came up here. Um, I teach over at Gordon, um, so I see some familiar faces from over there as well. So it's been a minute since I've been up here, and so I'm really thrilled to be here with you this morning. It is our custom to begin our time together with a little bit of silence kind of center ourselves. So let's give ourselves a moment to settle and invite the Holy Spirit to meet us. And then I'll open with prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence among us and in us. Guide us, comfort us, be near to us. You are a gentle and gracious God. Amen. Where are my parents or guardians? Can you raise your hand? Parents, guardians, okay. Happy, oh, here we go. Everything is changing again with the schedule and I have to figure it all out again day to all who celebrate. Yay! So parenting, the deepest joy and lots of overwhelm. Overwhelming heartache, overwhelming tasks, overwhelming decisions to make. Depending on the ages and situations of our kids, the kind of overwhelm is different, but we all feel it. That deep worry in our gut that sometimes roars to the surface. Am I doing a good job with my kids? That is the question, right? For all of us who are raising or have raised children, but the way that we assess ourselves has changed in recent years. 
For those in this room who are not parents or guardians or have grown children, let me catch you up on all the latest things with parenting. To do that, I give you Parenting Instagram. Mm. Now, you've seen some of this on some other social media sites, but Instagram has made how to be a better parent into an industry. There are accounts to follow to get your toddler to eat, for activities for all ages, how to talk to your unruly teen, for books, for discipline methods, anything you need or didn't know you, that you needed in order to be a parent, but obviously you now need, is there. And one of the most recent discussions over the past few years that has taken over books and mommy blogs and Instagram among those who parent and those who tell us how to parent is about gentle parenting. Gentle parenting is a catch-all term that encompasses other things like respectful parenting, intentional parenting, mindful parenting. In sum, this kind of parenting is a turn away from authoritative parenting, which has been and continues to be a popular approach to parenting. So the American Psychological Association gives a pretty good summary of authoritative parenting as a style in which the parents are nurturing, responsive, and supportive, yet set firm limits for their children. They attempt to control children's behavior by explaining rules, discussing, and reasoning. They listen to a child's viewpoint, but don't always accept it. For those who know, the debate here between the established authoritative style and gentle parenting is a whole thing. But I have questions. What is the definition of gentle here? It is set up as anti-authoritarian and anti-domineering, which I think we can all agree is a good thing, right? So gentle parenting is parenting that what exactly? That doesn't get angry? That gets angry but does so gently? doesn't have rules, has rules, but is super nice about them. Being or not being a gentle parent has become a real source of anxiety for many parents. So there was this article in the New Yorker earlier this year that addressed this exact issue. It was called the harsh realm of gentle parenting. Let me give you the definition of gentle parenting from this article. In its broadest outlines, gentle parenting centers on acknowledging a child's feelings and the motivations behind cha challenging behavior, as opposed to correcting the behavior itself. The gentle parent holds firm boundaries, gives child choices instead of orders, and issues rewards, punishments, and threats. No sticker charts, no timeouts, no I will turn this car around right now. Instead of issuing commands, put on your shoes, the parent strives to understand why a child is acting out in the first place. What's up, honey? You don't want to put your shoes on? Or perhaps they narrate the problem. You're playing with trains because putting your shoes on doesn't feel good. So gentle parenting sounds like it could be the right thing. But this, as this article notes, there's a fatigue that is settled in. Gentle parenting might be resulting in less gentleness with ourselves as parents and guardians who feel guilty with every ex exacerbated, exasperated response to a barrage of questions or tired of finding out at the last minute that our kid needed to do something for school or, oh, you're supposed to bring snacks to practice today in 10 minutes, right? So, or when we respond really poorly to a tantrum because we're so very tired. We want to be good parents, gentle parents even. 
But sometimes, for the love of all that is holy, put your freaking shoes on. So today we come to it, my friends, in our sermon series that we're calling Organic, the Fruits of the Spirit. The most misunderstood fruit of the bunch, I think. Gentleness. So what in the world does it mean to be gentle? I've been enjoying this series so far because I think I've had fruit of the spirit fatigue and I didn't realize it. The fruit are everywhere. For example, the sight of this passage superimposed on some random nature art, like here's one, yeah, okay, and another, yeah, and then another, okay, some are better than others, Um, or embroidered in looping, flourishing letters on a pillow in our mom's living room, right? Or a big recovered wood sign in the kitchen because fruit, it's a theme, you know? and, and just look on Etsy, like, okay, there you go. And you'll see, not going to lie, that farmhouse chic thing is really hard to resist. This site has made this passage so familiar that it means basically nothing. Okay? I realized when I was thinking about the fruit of the Spirit that I could generally define all the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, but when I tried to defend gent- define gentleness, I end up with a whole lot of vague Some stereotypes about weakness and some sort of syrupy sweetness thing kind of came out. I thought about my responses here and I realized something. My operational theology of gentleness is that it doesn't mean much. And if it does, it reminds me of how Christianity is sometimes sentimentalized and a bit syrupy. All frilly Bible covers, bad art, and sappy devotionals. And then I realized that I associate gentleness with femininity and femininity with sentimentality and syrup and weakness. Yikes. And it wasn't until spending some time with some theologians on disability that it occurred to me that I had gotten gentleness all wrong. So come with me, my friends, on an examination of our operational theology of gentleness. So I teach at Gordon, and one of the classes that I teach there for, that all students take is Christian theology. So just real quick, what is theology? There are a lot of definitions, but here's a quick what it is not and then what it is. What it is not is a list of doctrines that people argue about. What it is is working out with God and with others how faith and life meet. Okay? So theology is something that we all do. In that class, operational theology is the phrase we use to talk about the lens through which we are currently understanding something theologically. It's a theology kind of like an operating system that's running in our brains even in the background, even if it is unconscious or unexamined. It's the work of the Christian life to examine the theology that is that operating system of our faith and life so that we can live lives shaped by the gospel, transformed by the Holy Spirit, and equipped to love our neighbors. So a second passage for today is Ephesians 4. I, therefore, the prisoner and the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. And I love this passage, like a lot. Today I want to offer three things that gentleness is and to reflect on how to bear with one another in love. 
So with each of these three things that gentleness is, I'll be drawing on a few different theologians, specifically those who focus on disability. If you're like, ooh, that sounds super interesting, I highly recommend that you listen uh, or read someone like Dr. John Swinton from the University of Aberdeen. Here's his definition of a theology of disability. The attempt by disabled and non-disabled Christians to understand and interpret the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, and humanity against the backdrop of the historical and contemporary experiences of people with disabilities. Love that. So the first of three things. Number one, gentleness is risky. God is gentle. What would it be like if we did things gently? So gentleness or meekness, it's the same word in scripture, is central to who Jesus claims to be. Jesus says that he is gentle and humble in Matthew 11, that the meek will inherit the earth in Matthew 5. And in the Palm Sunday account in Matthew 21, the author quotes Zechariah 9 and applies it to Jesus. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. So Jesus is a gentle king. In addition, Paul uses this term a lot to refer to himself and to Christ. So whatever gentleness is... It is central to what it means to live a Jesus-shaped life. So let's look at this Matthew 11 passage specifically. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew 11, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. So this is a passage that over the years has given me and probably many of you great comfort. Jesus sees that we are weary and sees our burdens. Jesus beckons us in that space of need when life is beastly and cruel and says, I will give you rest. And not only rest, but he opens up a relationship with us in that space and offers us an alternative, one where he will be with us all the way. Take on the life that I offer, Jesus says. Be my disciple. I am gentle and humble, and this way of life, this yoke, this burden will be a place of rest for you. So what is this yoke? What is this burden? He tells us later in Matthew 16 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, that sure doesn't sound like an easy yoke or an easy burden to me, but Jesus is making the claim here that living unto Christ opens us to a life that is rest, even if it costs us everything. That our companion in Christ sees our struggles, knows what it's like to be human, and makes space for us. And Christ shows us this by example, opening himself to others, the broken, the sick, the marginalized, the overlooked, the ones deemed unacceptable. Christ's gentleness opens itself to others in spaces of difficulty and vulnerability. Gentleness is risky, but it is a risk worth taking. Our coming together in openness and vulnerability creates what Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel calls a holy space. Here God is always present, always at work. God is gentle. What would it be like if we did things gently? What holy spaces would be created between us? 
What healing could happen when we take the risk of gentleness and we lay down our burdens? When we take the risk of gentleness and share with someone our anxieties and our weaknesses? When we are met by another who is vulnerable with us? And with what holy space of gentleness could be created when we meet their vulnerability with our own? So where can you open yourself just a bit more to be known and loved and to know and love? Second, gentleness is risky, gentleness is restraint. God is a slow God. God takes the time to love. Apparently, we are supposed to be fighting in some way all the time. We fight to get noticed by our future employers, by our crushes, by our friends, our social media followings. We're supposed to fight for our marriages and our relationships. We fight diseases and we're in a battle with cancer, right? Pretty much anything in our political system is categorized as a fight. Prayer is a fight. If you don't fight for it, it's your fault that you don't have it, whatever it is. To succeed, you've got to fight to be where you are and you've got to do it fast. If you don't fight, then you're going to miss the opportunities. Those aren't coming around again. You've got to have grit, and if you don't, this world will eat you for breakfast. You've got to dominate, and goodness, my... Does that sound exhausting to anybody else? It certainly does to me. Aren't you tired? There's a lot of fight. What if, hear me out, not everything is a fight? This language of fighting has layers of pressure. There's the layer of performance. The pressure that we have to look like we're doing something, contributing something in order to matter. The layer of worry. The pressure of meeting our basic needs. What happens if I stop fighting? Will I be able to make rent? Will that cure for the disease not work? There's also a layer of even deeper fear that without fighting we will lose ourselves. The worry that no one will see us if we don't stand tall above everyone else. And we feel a lot of pressure here. We fear that if there's no fight in us, then we've ceased to be us. But what if everything's not a fight? But if we don't have the fight, then what do we have? Because fighting does save us. It can help us take good risks. When we take on injustice or reach for something we didn't think was possible. But we can't fight all the time. We can't. The scales are so heavily weighted toward all fight and not much flourish. And if everything is a fight, then we can't help but begin to see problems when there weren't problems and enemies where there weren't enemies. Gentleness isn't the opposite of fighting necessarily, because gentleness can be real good in a fight. Sometimes well-placed gentleness diffuses the fight or redirects it helpfully. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath is another way of saying that gentleness is de-escalation. Gentleness redirects. Instead of immediately jumping to fight mode, gentleness pauses. Gentleness slows down. Gentleness soaks in patience. And gentleness takes a deep breath. Sometimes gentleness prevents the fight. Sometimes gentleness wraps our fight in its embrace, diffusing and calming it. Sometimes gentleness is recovery after the fight, the self-care after you fought the good fight. 
Gentleness is restraint. Gentleness creates that holy space where it holds the center, holds the calm. And in this holy space, we restrain those impulses to fight, to achieve no matter the cost. Gentleness as restraint helps us to see that sometimes the fight for love and, and it enables us to flourish and sometimes that fight undercuts love and hinders flourishing. The place where gentleness fits best is in conflict. Two people seething with anger, ready to come to blows. A discussion among peers that turns into a debate, that turns into a screaming battle. And someone or a group of someones come in the middle there and they create a space in between. When gentleness comes face to face with brutality and violence, it doesn't flinch. It holds the line with nonviolent resistance. It chooses to love no matter what. Gentleness meets the fight head on and chooses to love unto the flourishing of all involved. Gentleness can create the holy space right in the middle of it all, no matter how long it takes. God is a slow God and takes time to love. Where can we relinquish the fight? What healing could happen when we restrain our fears and choose the slowness of love? When we restrain our impulse to go into fight mode and choose that holy space in between of gentleness, even if it stops us right in our tracks. What fears do you need to let go of? What fight do you need to let go of? Three, gentleness is risky, gentleness is restraint, gentleness is receptive. To be human is a wide range of possibilities. Now we need to talk about the genderedness of gentleness. First, gentleness in women. This one tends to go without saying. All the frilly pink Bible covers and floral devotional books and Bible studies for women about how to be a godly wife have made gentleness into an industry, just like gentle parenting. Gentleness is overwhelmingly considered a feminine virtue because 1 Peter 3, ladies, our beauty isn't about clothes, hair, outward adornment. Rather, it should be about your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. A gentle and quiet spirit. Now I see. This is where the stereotypes and difficulties with gentleness that I talked about earlier, that's where they stemmed from for me. When a passage is used against you, like this one was with me and other women who are too loud, too much, too whatever, then it might take some time to come back around to a passage like this to hear the spirit under the noise and the consequences of bad interpretation. For years, I heard all the other gentleness references through the lens of restriction, judgment, and coercion. My operational theology, which was not mine, but was an operation nonetheless, was that gentleness is a requirement that confines limits and infantilizes me as a woman. Yikes. Now for men. There's a few situations in which, in which it's a good thing for a man to be gentle. But if a man is always gentle, then this is often equated with weakness or a lack of manliness. There's an entire corner of the internet, sorry to say, in some commentaries and some books that does some very creative interpretive gymnastics to figure out how to translate all of the times that Jesus called himself gentle or is called gentle, and they turn it into a synonym of tough or strength under control. These, gentle, these claims resort to random pseudo-historical references to ancient war horses in Greece to make their case. I mean, that's, that's a reach. 
So apparently, we will go to great lengths to resist the idea that we might be called to be passive or receptive, even if we have to reinvent Jesus to do so. So gentleness is either too feminine or weirdly masculinized. So what is going on? Scripture seems to see gentleness as a human virtue, specifically one associated with Christ and followers of Christ. For example, only a few verses after that gentle and quietness verse, Peter tells everyone, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This and other gentleness is for all humans links were not made for me. Note our passage from this morning again. Gentleness helps us bear with one another. This bearing with one another is understood as the mechanism by which we maintain unity as the body of Christ. Paul says here that we should make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Clearly, unity is a priority. And it is foremost on Jesus' mind when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17 that we may be one as he and the Father are one. Why is it so difficult then? Why do we seem less unified than ever? I would venture to say that part of the problem is that we've not associated unity with gentleness, as this passage clearly intends us to do. Paul describes this unity, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This passage bears striking resemblance to 1 Corinthians 12, where there's one body with many members. A body has many members. A foot can't say, I don't need you to the hand. The eye can't lord itself over the ear and be like, yeah, I'm the eye, so I'm better. The body needs all its parts to be the body. So let's look at this passage briefly, 1 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 22. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. So we are meant to be a body that centers around those who are weaker. They are the indispensable ones. The less honorable are given greater honor. Those less respectable are given more respect. We all know reference, the references that Paul is making here. The parts of the body that are like important, but that we don't, don't show to people, right? The parts of us that are sensitive, but vital, and if we get hit there, it kind of hurts us a lot. Like, we get that, right? The parts that are a bit weird, that we hide or put makeup on, or is subject to way too many crunches and we shove into spanks, those parts. So God is saying all of the body is good. All of the bar- body has a part to play. In fact, some parts of the body, those sensitive and private parts, those ones are, we don't just show everyone, those spaces that we associate with weakness are actually the center of the body. God arranges his body around weakness. Paul is clear. God's arrangement has the whole body catering to and revolving around the weak. Those who can't, those who are unable, those who are sensitive and come with all sorts of mess. And it is only this arrangement, according to Paul, that leads to unity. Centering weakness leads to less dissension and more care and more empathy. 
Now, here's the thing. For many of, this, of us in this room, we hear weak and we think, that's not me. That can't be me for whatever reason. Weak people need stuff. Weak people can't cut it. Weak people don't succeed. Weak people need help, and it's embarrassing to ask for help. A little help is fine, but there's a line. My friends, I know we know this in our gut, but it needs to be said. This actually is you. You need stuff. You can't always cut it. You won't always succeed. You need help. We can't function perfectly all the time. We can't, can't go through life on our own merits and that be enough. We have to sleep. Our emotions will need some TLC from a therapist. Our brains will need medication to help it out. Our bodies will get sick. We will age and beloveds, we will die. This morning, you've been hearing from theologian on disability, John Swinton, the work on disability is one of the richest spaces in theology right now. And in this space, I've come face to face with my own inherent weakness that I try to ignore or hide or avoid. I come face to face with my own mortality, the increasing limitations of body and mind. The mind bit is especially terrifying to an academic. In that space, I get to learn from those who can't communicate in traditional ways, from those who are experienced the world as inaccessible to their way of being, for those who need constant care. Elizabeth McKinley writes in her book, Aging, Disability, and Spirituality, if in Christ God has opened up his very being in relation to human beings, there is nothing that can change that. God remains with and for the person with dementia, for instance, even when the person can no longer be with and for God, at least not in the cognitive sense. The significance and personhood of the person with dementia is safeguarded and sustained within the very being of God, quite apart from the relationships a person may or may not encounter at a temporal level. We might forget God, but God will not and indeed cannot forget us. We can no longer minister to God and to others. The God who is with us and for us will minister to us in our hour of need. God's coming to us in our weakness, his remembering us when all seems to be forgotten is an inevitable outcome of his essential nature of Christ for us. Christ's unending friendship carries us and sustains our personhood even when we can no longer minister to him. In our weakness, God is strong. In centering the weak among us, in accepting our own weakness, God's power is made perfect in weakness. By inhabiting the world in a slightly different way, those who live with limitation and need of constant care point us toward a dimension of humanness that is easily overlooked. Swinton describes it as the vocation to be cared for. But isn't my vocation about doing things, accomplishing things, doing it all for Jesus? Yeah, well, sometimes, yes, that's how we participate in God's redemptive activity. But other times, we need care. We need to receive. And that is to the glory of God, too. Swinton again. If your life involves the need to be cared for in all that you do, you do not lose your dignity, worth, value, or purpose. You simply realize and reveal an aspect of being human that easily becomes occluded by worldviews that prioritize intellect, autonomy, action, and independence. To care is to be faithful. To be cared for is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. To be human is to be loved. To be human is a wide range of possibilities. Gentleness is receptive. Gentleness is generous. generous gentleness holds space with another. In the end, gentleness is delicate in the sense that it has a light touch. What makes it the perfect virtue for someone who has around wounded per people a lot, like Jesus. 
Gentleness is not, however, fragile, as in something brittle that breaks with the slightest bend. Gentleness is delicate and soft, pliable in the sense that it can hold a lot of tension without breaking. When we are gentle with someone, we are giving them the space to be themselves. We are submitting to them, recognizing their agency, seeing their humanness, seeing them for who they are and what they need. And when we do that, we are discerning the body of Christ. We are seeing one another as Christ sees us. We are bearing with one another in love, seeing one another in all our mess and needs and wounds and caring. The foot really needs the hand. The eye really needs the ear. And their gentleness creates a holy space of unity where love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So where do you need to be cared for? Where do you need to receive? Throughout this sermon, I've given a few prompts, questions for reflection. These were more than just moments. These are scripts also for you to practice gentleness. Um, Sometimes we just need some words to get us started, and I I hope they will be helpful. So I want us to give it a try this week. I think they might be on a slide. Um, To use these scripts to begin practicing gentleness daily, hourly, if need be. Where can I open myself just a bit more to be known and loved and to know and love? What fears do I need to let go of? What fight do I need to let go of? What fear, what, where do I need to be cared for and where do I need to receive? Speaking of receiving, today is Communion Sunday. So we will be receiving God's body broken and blood shed for us. And normally, we pray at the end of sermons, but I want to do something a bit different to continue our kind of open-handed, sort of receptive posture before God. So if you wouldn't mind just opening your hands, if you're comfortable doing so, for a moment, because I want to give you something, a blessing. So instead of like bowing your head, I want you to look up at me. I want to give you something. May you feel the gentle God with you today. God has all the time and all the space for you and is rich in love. May you feel the warm embrace of a God who is slow and has all the time and space for you, for your mess, for your pain, for your anxieties, for your fear. May you feel the possibilities God has for you. And may you fulfill your vocation to receive the care of God and of others May we bear with one another in love as God has loved us. I bless you in the name of our gentle King, Jesus Christ. Amen.